Hello, I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. This podcast is being sponsored by Dynamis, a leading provider of information management software and security solutions. You can find them at dynamis.com. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. With me today is Nathan Weed, Chief of Resiliency and Health Security for the Washington State Department of Health. And believe it or not, folks, we are almost at the three-year point in celebrating, if that might be the wrong word to use, celebrating three years into the pandemic. And that's what we'll be talking about from a public health perspective at, at, at state level. So um, welcome, Nathan, to the Disaster Zone podcast. Yeah, well, Eric, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've certainly listened to your podcasts over the years and just look forward to to today's discussion with you. All right, that sounds great. And folks, I'd ask him if he'd listen. Yeah, I've listened to a couple, but he's going to become a regular listener like you guys are now. So, hey, Nathan, I always like to ask my guests what their professional journey has been into the world of emergency management because it's rarely a traditional, this is what I want to do uh, and, and pursue it. That's kind of happening now with younger people, but uh, you don't. You and I fit don't fit that mode. So, while you work today in public health, um, what is your journey into where you are now in, in emergency management in general? Yeah, great question. Years ago, I was a firefighter and an EMT in Wyoming, and ended up working a little bit more in the the EMS side of of the world. And at some point, I decided it would be a really great idea uh, to get a master's degree in something and was looking around. And back then, you remember, you'd have to order the, the catalogs from schools and, and, and all of that and had, had looked at a couple of different places and had sent in my letters of application and, and whatnot and and had started thinking, you know, public health schools might make sense with an EMS background, like that sort of fit together in my head a little bit. And again, being in Wyoming, uh, it was winter time, and we'd had two weeks of the nation's lowest temperatures, and it was thirty some degrees below zero. Yeah, and, and I, let's I, let's be clear to folks, that's not with the wind chill. That's just plain no. temperature, right? That's just yeah, exactly, and wind blowing like eighty miles an hour. And I received in the mail that day a letter of, of admission from Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I thought, somewhere warm. And so ended up going down to Tulane University School of Public Health in New Orleans. And it was interesting. I, I started off there, too, working as a medic and, and doing some pre-hospital work, but quickly found myself pulled into more and more the public health and especially the epidemiology side of EMS and trauma. And from there, 9-11 occurred and they were really looking for folks with a first responder background who also understood epidemiology and was able to, to secure a position with the state of Louisiana as their bioterrorism epidemiologist. 
worked there for several years and we didn't see a lot of bioterrorism, but what we did see a lot of were hurricanes. And so became a lot more interested in how communities respond to, to the effects of natural disasters. And some somewhere along the way, I, I met a woman from Puyallup, Washington. And hey, hey, good old Puyallup. That's where I live. All right. right, right. And we ended up getting married. And after Hurricane Katrina, to which we were both um, affected, but also responding to, to the effects, she said one day, you know, I think that I want to move back to Washington. And I think that you should come with me. And so I said, well, that sounds like a great plan. And interestingly, there was a, an opening in Clark County, and I applied for it and became the Region 4 uh, Public Health Emergency Response Coordinator um, down in Southwest Washington. So Clark, Cowlitz, Skamania, Wakayakin County, working a lot with the Cowlitz tribe, and then the Portland area, uh, doing emergency management. And Eric, it's, it's kind of funny because the morning of my interview, I uh, had flown into SeaTac and was staying with my in-laws. And at that time, you lived across the street from them. And the morning I met you, you were bringing in your trash cans and I was getting ready to drive down to Vancouver from their house uh, to go to that job interview. Okay. So kind of a little connection there. But um, from there, ended up just sort of working through the ranks and eventually found my way to DOH and... At DOH, I've had several different roles, both in emergency management, but also in like healthcare systems and some other areas. And then during the COVID pandemic, certainly um, was asked to serve as the state's area commander for the COVID response and then moved into the role I'm in now. Okay. I, I After we're done recording, <laughs> we'll explore more of the trash can incident, I'll call it, because I don't <laughs> recall that, but hey. It was a very brief meeting. I think you waved and said, hi, my name's Eric. And I, I said, yeah, my Nate Weed. And yeah, I think you might have been looking really a little bit puzzled why this guy you've never seen before is taking your neighbor's car. That was more the <laughs> gist of yeah. it. So, yeah. Okay. So, you know, we are approaching this. This should run here in January of 2023. So February is kind of the date where it showed up actually in Washington State um, itself. But we're almost there. So it, here in Washington, where it first appeared in continental United States, as we look back over that three-year period, what are some of the surprises that you remember most vividly, vividly from experiencing COVID over a 36-month period? Because there certain, were, certainly were a number of surprises that, as we did pandemic flu planning back in 2007 and maybe 14, we didn't anticipate. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's that's sort of where I might even start with with some of this. But when I look at sort of the big surprises, it was really how similarly the COVID pandemic rolled out relative to things that we had been discussing and planning for since all the way back in 2005 and 2006. We we had always suspected that we'd see a novel communicable disease. And so that means that you know, we don't know a lot about it from a scientific perspective. People don't have immunity to it. There's no vaccine available for it, but we knew that a disease like this could emerge and that it would have some really significant 
impacts not just on human health, but on, on all sorts of social structures around it, schools, education, economics, business. So, you know, it was interesting from that perspective that we did see a lot of those planning assumptions that we had in the early to mid 2000s actually begin to play out in this pandemic. I think the other, the other, and I don't know that this is necessarily a surprise, but maybe a reflection, but we, because it was novel, we in the response world were always trying to catch up and learn what we needed to learn to deal with the problem that we were currently working with. And the challenge, as you know, as an emergency manager, is that often you'd really prefer to do that learning to be much more proactive and be working on the next problem that's going to come up. And so because of the novelty of the virus and the novelty of the situation, we often found ourselves behind the power curve in this. Rushing, trying to catch up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, you know, for me, one of the things I just remember early on, we said, okay, it's going to take up to seven years to get a vaccine. Of course, we were blessed by the, I think it's RNA, if I remember, mm-hmm. I'm not <laughs> a type of where that was, you know, just ready to be rolled out. Not that particular one, but the technology enabled. That, that was a big surprise, I think, on the positive side versus. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the benefit, right? Is that in those years that we were planning for pandemics, the the scientific community was trying to work through ways that you could make vaccines faster. They were trying to figure out how we could be more responsive because we did know, right, that we would be behind the power curve. We knew that if we ever had to deal with a pandemic, we would be trying to catch up. And so there were a lot of really, really bright folks out there in the scientific world that were already trying to think about how could you make a vaccine faster to deal with this? What would that look like? How would that change? And so timing-wise, it was great that that RNA technology was coming together at the same time that we were needing it for this pandemic. Okay. Now, I didn't talk to you in advance about this, but we tried to avoid acronyms. I have no idea what RNA stands for. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> so um, mitochondrial, I believe... Actually, I should probably check this one, but uh, RNA is um, basically a kind of version of a DNA strand. So you're using genetic material a little bit differently in the virus or, or the the thing that you're working with to actually be able to create the, the vaccine a little bit faster. The traditional way of building a vaccine is really that you, you grow the virus in some sort of substance and then use that to build the build the vaccine. So this shortens that time frame quite a bit. Okay. All right. Well, I I think everybody would admit that it was a pretty bumpy start for public health in in general. And you know what caused that to happen from your perspective? And then what do you think could have been done at the national, state, or local levels to have had better outcomes or Sometimes the outcomes were pretty good. Actually, Washington State had pretty good outcomes, and some of the counties in Washington State had good outcomes. But boy, that was a bumpy ride. So, what do you think caused that? And you know, how how could we smoothed out the road? I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's an interesting question because I think that in some ways, when I look at the response, 
I can break it down into probably about 10 different waves of the response. And each one was a little bit unique from a response perspective. Really early on when we were initially dealing with a couple of cases here and there and trying to get it figured out, it felt like we were actually responding really effectively and, and that, that we were kind of on top of things. But as the disease spread really began to move rapidly, and especially into North America, we ended up in a situation where we as, as public health professionals were essentially doing the public health science kind of in front of everyone. And the trickiness with that is that you're doing it to really learn what you need to, to know about the virus, about vaccines, about testing, about ways to prevent the spread of vaccine. And normally this is done, you know, every day by public health professionals and researchers, and they do it kind of behind the scenes, really. It's not like they're doing it, you know, in a hidden way, but they're just not, nobody's paying much attention to them. Yeah, you you're, you're reminded me of the term about you don't want to watch legislation being made because it's like sausage making. And so I, I, I don't know whether that's a, you know, applicable type of thing to the virus but you're saying you know information comes out then oh well it might not be gone no that 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 didn't pan out the way we thought it would and then then it because it's changing so rapidly it, it destroys trust people want the answer not a answer that's exactly it yeah the sausage making is is certainly an apropos um analog but yeah it's it's just that you know as you're learning new things every day about about the virus about the vaccines about the way we test about how it's being spread it does have that effect of looking not real linear and and looking a little bit messy and i think that you know one of the one of the challenges for public health is that we spend so much of our time in that that kind of background of, of society doing our work that folks are not familiar with that. But then as public health professionals, we're not very familiar with how to really communicate that well. Yeah. Right. And we're so going to talk that, about that next. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, here's another one that um, I, I participate in three different pandemic after action reviews for three different jurisdictions, um, two cities and a county. Uh, and one of the things in that, and we talked to a wide variety of people, of course, is public health is traditionally, in a response, a supporting role, you know, to whatever. It could be flood, hurricanes, all that. You got to deal with environmental health, stuff like that, but they're not the lead. I think another aspect of this uh, pandemic is it thrust uh, public health right into the forefront and then which they weren't used to being in. They're used to being in the background, have um, health officer come up and say a few words and leave. Well, now the health officer is up there. He's he's uh, got top billing on the billboard uh, type of thing. So, well, what what why do you think the messaging via public information was so difficult uh, to to achieve? And I got some follow up questions with that also. Yeah. Well, I think there's a few things that that made that a little bit difficult. I think one is that often when we're communicating um, 
science to anyone. Like just when you're discussing science, it's it's nuanced and it's got a lot of acronyms and it's it's not plain talk, right? And so I think, you know, because public health folks often don't have a lot of practice at communicating the scientific facts and, and the ways that we're doing things to a general audience, that that held us up, right? That made it more difficult to really explain things well and explain things consistently. I think the other part is that in this pandemic, the the amount of information that was was evolving each day was so substantial that just getting in front of that with with messaging was was very difficult and i think that that's where that's where really that application of those joint information centers and really tying those joint information centers effectively to the folks that have that information was was really valuable for for our response in Washington, we had a JIC put together relatively quickly. We probably could have gotten it together a little bit more quickly, but I think the challenge was really about making sure that that JIC was effectively connected in with all the different inflows of information and had the ability to really kind of grapple with that information. Yeah. And it wasn't until we were we were kind of into the pandemic a ways that we got all of those connections built out and then we did i think see some of that public information really begin to smooth out and be more consistent and have the right right approach to really working with with the public and with partners around some of that but it definitely took a little bit of building to get there and that's like one of those pieces where I think as we look at those after action reviews and really puzzle through what we're going to do to implement the lessons learned, one of them really is going to be how do we prepare everyone to really be able to not just stand up the joint information centers, but then connect in the right way so that we have all the pertinent information coming in quickly and, and efficiently. Right. Well, <clears throat> Let's talk about social media. Social media mm. is a two-edged sword for sure. I mean, uh, I don't know what approach Washington State Department of Health took towards, but one of the issues with communication, you talked about trying to get the Joint Information Center all lined up for what government is saying, but then people were tuning into their social media channels, and there's a bunch of them out there to include those that... Um, had false narratives, uh, misinformation, which I would call more like rumors. They, they hear something and then they propagate it. And then actual disinformation where they're purposely trying to spread bad information. So what what happened with social media at Washington State? And what, what approach did you guys take? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that from a public health perspective, you know, we spend a lot of time working on just day-to-day -day wellness, environmental health, and, and things that that are, are really great um, uses of, of social media. So from a public health perspective, we are very key users of social media. But I think that as we moved into the pandemic, the infrastructure that we had for really using that that tool wasn't big enough, right? We hadn't built that level of infrastructure to really be aggressive at being able to communicate things through social media. At the same time, I think, you know, in 2018, the Department of Homeland Security, their uh, social media working group for emergency services and disaster management actually put out 
um, that report that was really looking at countering false information on social media and in disasters and emergencies. And so for a couple of years, even before the pandemic, this was becoming enough of an issue that, that our federal partners were really starting to pay attention. And in there, you know, I think one of the key key features is that ability for particularly um, governmental response partners to build good partnerships with traditional media, build good partnerships with other organizations that they they work closely with in disasters, so that as that disinformation and misinformation begins to emerge in social media we all are really beginning to step forward with a very consistent and a very front-facing message about what is true, what are the facts, how do we make, make things more transparent for folks. And in there, you know, one of the things that, that public health learned really following the, the Fukushima disaster um, several years ago is the value of really getting data um, available to people, the public health data available to the public and to, to communities. And that's that's not a small task. That requires a lot of infrastructure development and a lot of um, back-end information technology work that often health departments struggle to do even on a daily basis, let alone in a pandemic where now you're, you're doing a lot more work on a lot shorter time frame. So you know, again, as as we look at sort of the trajectory of the pandemic, one of the one of the goals early on was to get as much data as we could available to the public, so they could really see it for themselves and really make good good decisions based on that information. And then, as we moved into the pandemic further, we were finally able to get some of those dashboards and and public facing information out there that folks could access themselves and and look at and you know, certainly discuss and and look for look for additional information or additional input on what that what that meant. But again, it was it was a little bit further down the road. And by then we'd already had so much yeah. of the counter narratives out there that we started to to struggle a little bit to regain traction. Yeah. It's kind of like from an emergency management perspective, I always say that um you can only activate your EOC emergency operations center uh, too late, never too early, because once you get behind the curve on an incident, and, and you were talking from a public information standpoint, it's really hard to catch up, really hard to catch up. So, Well, listen, we're about halfway through there, Nathan, so we're going to take a quick break for this message. Everybody stay tuned. We'll be right back. This podcast is being sponsored by COBRA an emergency management software solution. Cobra provides a cloud-based EOC software that is intuitive, collaborative, and affordable. Visit cobrasoftware.com. Welcome back, and we are talking with Nathan Weed, who's the Chief Resiliency Officer and Health Security for the Washington State Department of Health, and we've been talking about the pandemic and um, some of it, the experiences, but we're going to move more into the current, where are we today, because we're still in the pandemic. Note the World Health Organization or CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, or HHS, Health and Human Services, has not declared the pandemic over at all. So, Nathan, if you could uh, take your magic wand now 
and change the past, what would you have done differently related to COVID? And some of these things you've talked to already, you just before we went to break, talked about the whole social media uh, aspect of it. And then um, just the, the problem of commuting, communicating science. Is there something else? Yeah. There, that's such a great reflection. And I think that in my mind, one of the things that I, I look back on and wish would have gone differently is having stronger connectivity with some of the organizations that we maybe don't work with all the time, but during a pandemic were incredibly important for, for a lot of different reasons, not just the health response, but the social services response, the the economic response. And so looking back, it would have been, I think, wonderful to have much tighter relationships with some other other governmental agencies with whom we don't always work consistently. It would have been great to have some tighter relationships with faith-based organizations, with business communities, with others out there who, who really can and do often in, in any response help help communities really grapple with the issues that they're dealing with. So, you know, this is sort of an interesting little piece, but until recently in, in public health, we've often really looked at things from a, from a preparedness perspective, right? How do we train and equip and exercise in a way that, that furthers our preparedness and through the pandemic, we've really shifted a little bit to thinking about things from that resilience perspective. Preparedness is still a very important part of that resilience, but it's bigger, right? It's that connectivity between organizations and between people that you can really leverage in a disaster and, and use those relationships, not just for, you know, the response, but the figuring it out, the communicating, the the giving each other just that awareness of what's happening so you can get ahead of things more quickly. Yeah, you know, interesting. Um, everybody's been on Zoom or Teams or whatever for all their meetings and coordination, stuff like that. And I was on a recent, uh, I mean, just yesterday with a county where they're been doing everything remotely now for three years, almost three years, and they're going to move back to an in person, multi-organizational, uh, public-private type of meeting, and people are, we've gotten used to this, the ease of being in your bedroom or wherever you are, and saying, well, you know, they won't attend, and sometimes I go down, what they're saying is, hey, do I really need to get in my car and drive there for a meeting, but I'd like to highlight what you just said, those meetings, it's time before the meeting, time after the meeting, where a lot of times relationships, that one-on-one -on -one personal relationships are built. You just don't can't get that uh, remotely on Zoom. And so if you want to have the relationship, you got to invest time and it has to be face-to-face. -face. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I just look at, like you and I, I mean, I think that over the years, we've certainly been in some of these meetings together, but it's not not often easy to just connect and sort of see how things are going in each other's lives and figure out where we might have some opportunities to maybe do some work together. But it's always that, yeah, the coffee break at the meeting or yeah. right after, or as we're getting settled in that we have those times to connect and chat and, and be human with each other. Right. right. And, you know, uh, my advice to everybody, and I've been guilty of this is the, Anybody else, you'd say, okay, here's our schedule. 
Uh, we're going to have to be only do a stand-up break or 10 minutes or something like that. No, it'd probably be better. Cut some of the agenda, some of the information being shared, and let them spend more time together with one another on the break. You know. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Sometimes do you ever think that that's a little bit of a risk for our profession? We're we're often so task-oriented. We're yeah, kind of, right? a lot of us are operators, right? And we want to yes. get things done. That's and yet, right. We need to take that time to to also just really connect, right? Yeah, yeah. And we'd say in emergency management, relationships are the most important piece. Right? And we saw that play out many times. In the well, it, it hasn't been as big a story as it was before um, the new year, 2023. And looking back at 2022 and uh, October, November, December, there was talk of a tri-pandemic. You got the flu season coming got RSV, which is another respiratory virus, and then we had COVID still there. And um, actually, I just heard from somebody I served with in the military. Uh, he, he took my position at Fort Lewis when I left, but he was in the hospital for two months. He contracted RSV, and he, you know, he's probably 70 years old, something like that, but uh, he said it was touch and go for him. Uh, so you had all those three things going on at the at the, the same time. Um, it appears baby RSV is taking a backseat now. That little kids aren't as sick, or at least it's not in the news. What what's the status of those three now in Washington State? And then, if you know nationally, uh, as far as the um, flu, COVID, and uh, RSV. Yeah, great question. You know, I think that this year, one of the big challenges is that there were so many people who have been really taking their respiratory protection very seriously, which is great. But as a lot of folks kind of emerged back into the world and there was just a great opportunity for a lot of the viral respiratory diseases to, to make an uptick. And so we did. We saw several different circulating viruses that that cause respiratory diseases and it really was um, a mix. We saw RSV, which primarily affects kids and, and folks that are a little bit older, but we also saw a big uptick in influenza. And influenza is, is always a serious disease. It's um, every year a pretty significant um, health impact to our state. And this year we saw that along with COVID. And, and so it was this, this cocktail of things that were we're really driving a lot of folks towards hospitals, emergency departments, and some even ended up, as as you mentioned with your friend, being being there for a while. And so we're starting to see a lot of that kind of trickle down a little bit with RSV. We're not seeing as much of that at this point. COVID is going to be interesting because we're probably going to see um, some additional little surges along the way as, as we settle into more of what we in public health refer to as sort of the endemicity or the the kind of steady state of a new disease being okay, part of our so modern. that's a new word for me. What's that word? Well, so endemicity, right? And, a disease is okay. becoming what we would call endemic. So it's okay. becoming part okay. of our, All right. yeah, All yep. Right. Part of the mix, but but it's not like it just pop, poof one day it happens, right? It it it's a process, and we're going to see probably some additional additional COVID surges as we as we settle into that state. Influenza is is kind of stabilized for the most part, but 
you know, we see this every year where in Washington, we usually hit our our peak flu season a little later than maybe some other parts of the country. So we've probably got a little further to go before we're there. But then we do usually see it begin to, to come down a little bit as, as we move into the springtime and people are getting a little bit more outside time. Okay. All right. So, you know, let's dive a little bit more into um, COVID. I, I've been surprised. I want, well, you know, taking this out of my memory block, not from a note I had, but it was something like only about, and you, you might have this, 15% of all people eligible to get the fourth booster, I'll call it that, have taken advantage of that. And even within the senior population, which is more vulnerable, that number is not very high. So is that, if, if I got that number right, or you have... A better number on that. I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to look up the exact number, but you're definitely in the ballpark. You know, we're we're not seeing as much uptake of of the the booster that we would like to see. the The part that's a you know a little concerning is that nationally speaking, when we look at the booster uptake, um, it seems pretty pretty consistent across the country that it's low. And you know, I do think that there's there's a lot of reasons for that, but as we're still working through this, this new disease, um, really vaccines are an important way of being able to protect yourself and being able to at least um, give, your, give your body the kind of protection it needs from some of these, these invasive, invasive viruses. And as we're you know, looking at, at not just, as you mentioned a minute ago, not just COVID, but also influenza, you know, that's the other area where we really are are wishing that we would see more folks um, taking advantage of the influenza vaccines yeah. that are out there, because those two really do protect you from another disease that has some pretty significant health consequences. Well, why don't we talk about this a little bit more? I'm counting on you having that master's degree and be able to take endemic and make it into a longer word. Um I, you know, I've talked, I talked to a lot of people, are you vaccinated, not whatever, former neighbor, he's saying, no, no, you know, those vaccines don't prevent it, but, you know, you getting the sick, which is a true statement for like the flu and COVID, you may still get it, but the, how sick you are may be significantly, but then there is a smallpox uh, vaccination, there is polio vaccination that do prevent it, all right, that there are different types of vaccines. One will actually prevent it, and the flu and COVID just lessens the impact of you uh, of the virus to you and your body. Is that have I got that right in lay terms? I think basically, yeah. It you know, every every vaccine that's out there has a certain amount of what they would refer to as the efficacy, right? And depending on people's bodies and their their own immune systems and how well they respond to a vaccine is part of the equation. But then the the virus itself is the other part of the equation, right? And when you have a, a very um, quickly adapting virus like like influenza or COVID, a lot of times the vaccine is is trying to get close, right? 
So the match isn't always as perfect as it is in a lab. And so you do see some folks that that could develop the disease, but usually it is a much less severe version of the disease than if they if they were not vaccinated. Yeah. Keep, and then you, keep you out of the hospital in intensive care and on a ventilator, right? So yeah. That yeah. seems like a pretty good outcome to me. Yeah. Yeah. A few days of drinking plenty of clear fluids and getting some rest versus being on a ventilator is a big, big jump. Yeah. yeah. So I, with COVID, it appears to continue to mutate. Where, where are we with mutations? What's current in the population now? Because, you know, they change over time and spread. And then, you know, the fourth booster is made based on what they anticipated or they had currently coming, that type of thing. So where are we on that? Well, we are seeing the virus continuing to, to mutate and adjust. It's it's a very adaptable virus, right? That's one of the things that's been so difficult with this pandemic is that the virus does continue to adjust and, and mutate. And when it does that, it can it can change sort of how it behaves a little bit. The good news on that is that the way it seems to be adjusting and and mutating, it's not becoming one um, not susceptible to the the vaccines. So the vaccines are still working to prevent it. So that's good. The other part is it's not becoming more more aggressive as it's mutating, and I think that's also working to our our favor. Is it's not getting it's not becoming a, a more dangerous virus. But it is continuing to change, and I think that as we as we move toward um, maybe a little bit more stability of the virus in 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 our human population around the world, but also kind of as it sits out in there in the world doing whatever it's doing, we're going to see things begin to settle out a little bit, and we'll see that that it becomes a little bit more. Um, a little bit more predictable and a little bit more cyclical. And that's going to inform certainly how, how vaccine development occurs in the future and, and how maybe we, we do things to, to prevent disease. I think one thing I would just offer is that in there with any viral respiratory disease, you know, there's, there's those key things that we can all do all the time. So that really paying attention to our hand hygiene, washing our hands, I mean, it's sort of a little bit of an old school public health message, but it really does have a, a good impact on keeping you healthy, you know, staying home when we're sick. You know, so many of us, you know, we we don't feel real well. We're maybe I've, coughing a little bit. And I was, I, I, I've changed. I've changed. I've, I've seen the light. I've repented of my previous behavior. <laughs> I used right? to say, well, I could be sick at home or I could be sick at work. And I would go to work and spread my disease or cold or everywhere. So I'm much yeah. better. I, I, I specifically remember this. I had a sinus infection. I'd take the train into Seattle. You got four people sitting there. And, you know, the the two women across me sat down. And they stayed there about 10 minutes. They got up and moved to different seats. So, yep. yeah. Guilty. Yeah. Don't do don't do as I did. Do as I, uh, Nathan says right now. <laughs> Right. As we all as we all adopt new behaviors for the new yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, the last piece is that masking really is an effective way of keeping things out of our respiratory system. And, you know, I know there's all sorts of views on masking and, and thoughts on that. 
But I will just say for one, I I can't imagine at this point really getting on an airplane without a mask. You know, oh, yeah. if I'm going to be in a confined space with other people and their respiratory bugs, the simple fact of pulling on a mask and and knowing that I'm not going to have a you know, a, a cold or a sinus infection at the end of the trip, you know, things like that, um, I really do think are are key. And then, you know, the rest of the time, you just kind of have to really manage your, your own risk assessment and say, you know, hey, am I in a situation where it would make sense to, to pull on a mask, whether because, you know, I don't want to get something or maybe I have a little something I don't want to give to other people and, yeah. and making good choices there. But it's also a tool that's available to us. Okay. And I, you know, on that train now, I always wear a mask coming and going. It's easy. It's, I only wear the surgical type mask, but, and then when I grocery shop, I, I use a mask because you're in around a lot of different people touching stuff, like you say, even though, and again, COVID is a respiratory, not a touch type thing, but there's lots of other, and I still carry hand sanitizer. And when I get back in the car, I try and remember to spray the old hands here. So what final thoughts do you have for anyone listening to this podcast about they can protect themselves from these diseases? And I, you could just summarize it. And uh, do you have any predictions for what's coming next? Maybe, why don't you just say that? Why don't you cover that? Because you talked about what people can do. So yeah, what, well, what predictions? You're look, looking to that crystal ball or whatever you got or... And say what's coming. When when will the pandemic be declared over, Nathan? You know, I think that the pandemic is is beginning to fade. The pandemic part of of our experience with COVID is beginning to to settle out. I think that, like I said, we'll have we'll have a little bit of road in front of us where you know we'll be adjusting to having this this virus be part of our world. And that's going to be a little bit tough, but, you know, I would say that given, given who listens to the podcast and, and sort of the work that we do, you know, my real prediction is that we're going to see other things like this in the future. We're going to see other emerging diseases. We're going to potentially see other types of threats. And, you know, looking back at, at that whole period of time from 2005 or six, all the way up to 2020, you know, we we all in this profession worked hard to do what preparedness work we could to get people ready for a pandemic. And I think that reflecting on that a little bit, you know, as we move forward, what can we be doing to, to help people take a step back and, and really think about their preparedness and their, their, their own personal resiliency for whether it's a pandemic or a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake or a whatever right and how can we we as emergency managers and public safety officials really help help others do the best they can to to prepare because there will be something right yeah yeah and i would just say this where i live um here in puyallup our, our hospital is good samaritan hospital and uh still today uh, people are parked in hallways and spending time in the emergency room because there's no beds available. So it isn't like everything's hunky-dory here, folks. If you have to go into the medical system today, and it's not just here where I live, I know hospitals everywhere are feeling the crunch. Any, any last word on that, Nathan, before we... Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, our healthcare system is is at capacity. It's, it's not... 
Um, not a joke right now, folks working in our healthcare systems are, are exhausted. There's a lot of workforce shortages in that system. The amount of space available for care in a lot of hospitals is, is, is limited to what's, what it is. And I know, you know, I'm in almost daily contact with healthcare partners around this and they are all saying the same thing. It's tight. It's, it's scary tight. And, you know, really asking everyone out there to do whatever they can to keep themselves healthy, to keep themselves well, um, well in the sense of the whole body, right? Mind, body, spirit, wellness, and and do what they can to not necessarily need to, to be in a hospital, not be using the medical system. And, you know, as we as we work through this, this is another area of preparedness of really looking at how our healthcare system can have the the resilience and the capacity to be able to to do what it does in an emergency, right? So, yet another opportunity for us as emergency managers to engage with folks and think through what are some of those ways that we can get creative and get um, get folks the care they need when they need it during an emergency. Okay. Well, I I just want to say thank you, to Nathan Weed, for being a guest here on the Disaster Zone podcast. Eric, thank you so much for having me today. This was a lot of fun and it's great to see you and look forward to hearing this. Well, it's great to be seen. I always say it's better to be seen than viewed. That's a term I use sometimes. And so uh, folks, while COVID is somewhat in our rear view mirror, it's not done with us as we heard today. And we need to do what Nathan said to protect ourselves and our families and uh, to be well in all the three dimensions he said. So lastly, a reminder to everyone, be safe. Think about what you can do today. We just talked about to become personally better prepared and healthy for the next disaster and to protect children. If you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share it with your professional and social media contacts. Thanks for listening and be safe. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.